0: Welcome to A Beautiful Faith, where we give voice to all that makes faith beautiful. Uh, And I am with Henry Johnson, the wonderful Henry Johnson, of course, social distanced, so we're not, like, physically in the same place. Um, Gotta, you know, gotta maintain that health as much as possible. I actually had a... So I've been having problems the last several weeks, I would probably say month and a half to two months, with ants, uh, with sugar ants. Really, really bad. Every room of the house, um, bathrooms, kitchen, you name it, just hanging out. And it's not like I'm a slob. Like, I've definitely left, like, a can of soda out overnight occasionally or whatever. But it's more that I'm cluttery. I'm not, like, disgusting, if that makes sense. Um, and even in my clutter, I know where everything is usually. It's only recently that I've begun to lose things. But, uh... It finally came to a head yesterday when I went to get the mail and my mailbox, I, I I reached in and grabbed a package that was in there and some letters and they were covered in ants and my entire mailbox had been invaded by hundreds of ants and their eggs. So I called my landlord and was like, all right, this has evolved beyond like, this is a normal ant problem. If I leave a can of soda out or something sugary out for like an hour, I have ants coming after it. Like they're ready and primed for the attack. Um, so he called pest control today and the pest control guy came. Um... And, you know, sprayed, set the bait and everything. But he had shoe covers. He had gloves. Um, he had a N95 or like a, like a mask that he hates wearing. He was fully kitted out, um, uh, sle- long sleeves taped over the gloves that he was using, um, down to his boots. I mean, there was no skin showing that didn't need to be showing outside of his face. Um, like everyone is taking such huge
1: precautions right now. Some people are. I've seen some others that don't, although that's interesting that you bring up the sugar ant problem because I've had an explosion of them at my place as well this week, and I've never had a problem in the two years I've been here. Yeah. And I came back in the other day from working in the yard, and my cat's food dish was swarming with them. They had found it. It's been in the same place for two years. I've never had a problem. They were going to town in it. I, like, murdered a bazillion of them. I mean, they were just crawling right up under the front door and crawling all the way in there, a whole big line of them. And I killed them and I got spray and went all the way through and I thought, okay, they're done. And then I made the mistake of setting the cat food right back where it's been. Mm. And within two hours, the swarms were all the way back at the cat food.
0: Man, now you're making me nervous. That's the one place I haven't checked is my dog's food.
1: Now I'm scared. Yeah, because I've never had that problem. And I was like, what in the world? So I lost two whole things of food for the cat and had to get them. And I had to go buy an industrial ant and bug killer, the stuff that, you know, you connect to the hose and it do, does the dilution process through your garden hose or whatever. Yeah. So it's high end stuff. And I sprayed every door, window, access, the carport, everything with this stuff, trying to stop them. And I've now moved the food somewhere far away from any door temporarily. Cause I'm just so paranoid about the ants getting it. So I've never seen this many ants in, a long time. I don't know if COVID is helping them grow because something is not stopping them anymore. Or if mass human movement has the temperature been, underground or something. has the,
0: has the temperature been kind of wild in the morning and then like, has it fluctuated wildly throughout the day? Yes. Cause that's apparently part of it. Um, is the ants don't know what to do with themselves during
1: times like this, but,
0: um, I don't really. I don't know
1: what to do with myself during times like this. Fair.
0: I do. I lived like this for, what, two years, three, two and a half years? So I'm very well acquainted with this process, um, <laughs> for better or for worse. I've actually learned a whole lot of new recipes. I tried a new stir fry last night. I've been looking into buying a wok um, and learning how to season it. The problem is that I don't have the right tools right now to actually properly season a wok. If I was going to do it. I would need to buy the wok itself, which would be thirty bucks or so. uh, The actual wok utensils, and then an actual like outdoor burner. And we're talking now that 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 is a it's more much more than just buying a wok and using my stovetop because my stovetop can't handle it. So it's now. So if you get all
1: those specialty tools, you'll be ready to
0: walk and roll. Yeah, that's right. I will be able to walk, ready to walk and roll. Um, I'm actually looking forward to it a lot. But what's crazy is with wok cooking. I don't know if you've ever looked into it or like how to get a walk or anything. I promise this is related. Um, the, the really cool thing um, is that there's an entire process to seasoning a walk. When you first get it, you have to like, you have to wash it with soap and water, get rid of, and with an abrasive, uh, white, like a, like steel wool, like wipe it down and get rid of all the coating that the manufacturer puts on it. Then you have to heat the thing up till it, To super hot and smoking then you start adding layers of oil on it and you literally change the color of your wok and that's what season and then over time as you use it more and more those that oil layer builds up over time as well um and it turns it into this not it basically it turns it from an unusable wok into this amazing cooking thing cooking tool um but it's wild because you have to follow this ritual almost exactly um anytime that there's a youtube video that's been a tutorial on how to season a wok i've watched They've been like uh, if they say a step wrong or out of order or they skip a step, the comments light them up saying you can't do that. That's improper. Like you've skipped a step. You like you're this is dangerous or something like that. Like just some crazy thing. Um, So the
1: comments walk your your world. Yeah,
0: they walked my world. They walked
1: my world. I'm actually in the mood for your puns today. So I'm okay with this. You Um, can tell, ladies and gentlemen, that covid has destroyed us. We talked about ants walk and Ryan has enjoyed all three puns I've done so far. yeah, and something's said, terribly wrong. get out, um, yeah, something is really wrong,
0: but no that i mean that that very much is though related to what we're talking about today in liturgy because when you are like when when you talk about cooking in general, anything with a cast iron skillet or cast iron cookware and um and now carbon steel walks as have now been added to that as well as as uh, cast iron walks. Uh, there's this ritual of care. There's these. There's tradition that people have followed, and then there's there's these processes that have been laid out, and there's a structure and an order to properly preparing and taking care of your of your cookware, of your more kind of long lasting cookware. It's and what we're talking about today is very much related to the structure of things. The The, um, the order of process that is stuck
1: in iron and no matter how much heat you put to it, if irrelevance and everything in the world, it doesn't move. Correct. And that my friends is liturgy.
0: We are talking about liturgy. Um, now don't freak out. This is a beautiful faith. And so if you're thinking, if you're thinking right now, you hear that word or you saw the episode title and you're curious what we're going to be talking about. Um, if liturgy is something that you've traditionally shied away from, or something that uh, you get, nice puns thank you um the this is such a wholesome episode so far <laughs> other than the thousands or millions of ants that have died um <laughs> the insectoid genocide yes yeah. the uh, um but if you're someone who's shied away from it or you know has a really negative experience with it anything like that um don't fret this is not an unsafe episode for you to listen to we're gonna do our best not to like tick you off or Or retrigger any of those negative experiences you've had. What we actually want to do is what we've done with everything. It's kind of like uh, think of this like our rediscovering purity episode. Um, You know, the one where I had the disclaimer at the end, not the beginning. Um, (laughs) uh, Think of it's probably fixed by the time you're hearing this. Um, But think of this like that. It's very much. It's not that purity is a bad thing. It's that we're going to rediscover what purity should have looked like the entire time within Christian culture. Um, Right. So
1: if you're coming from a tradition that is very liturgy-focused, and we're going to talk about all churches have some form of liturgy, but especially in the West, in Christendom, you usually have what they call high church and light liturgy services, so this kind of idea of those that have a much more structured system and those that are more free-throwing and change from service to service, whatever. Uh, and we're not necessarily trying to say in this episode that liturgy is bad in and of itself either. So Correct. That is not the goal at all. So we want to
0: just dive into this idea of liturgy, talk about it from a different, a few different perspectives and angles, and and see really how this kind of impacts our lives and, and what its relevance is or isn't right now. I think that's, that's kind of the goal here. Uh, whether we meet that goal or not, I guess you'll find out over the course of the next—
1: It's irrelevant as long as the liturgy
0: continues. Hey, hey there we go. There we go. Um, also, this is going to be really annoying because our episode outline that we follow— Um, it's not a script, don't worry. This is free-flowing conversation. We don't know exactly where this is gonna go. Um is more than a page long and the scroll wheel on my mouse is broken, and if I even tap it accidentally, it just starts scrolling like wild. Um, so this is gonna be a fun time of me trying to figure out where we
1: are. Um so well, if you get really stuck, like give me a blink or something and I will I will segue into the next thing.
0: Thank you. Uh yeah, I'll just blink twice. Um, I'll give you a long blink. In uh, Morse code, the so the entire idea of liturgy, I think, right now has been really challenged by COVID nineteen and the pandemic. And I think this is as close as we're going to get to really directly talking about the pandemic in the episode content itself, um, because th- unless this goes on for another year, facts. Um, essentially, it, it's it's impacted and challenged uh, traditional liturgy because traditional liturgy no longer exists for the time. Uh, for the time that we're doing this. I mean, some forms and hints of it do. And when I say traditional liturgy, I mean, kind of whatever you think of the way that we do church has been challenged, essentially. Traditions have been challenged. And I think the church will end up looking a lot different at the other end of this. Um, And so that becomes kind of the springboard that we're able to have this conversation because our way of doing church life has been greatly impacted. And so I think a good place to start here is actually to... Define liturgy um, and what we're talking about when we talk about liturgy. So Henry, I'd love for you to to add something here as far as what are we what are we actually talking about when we say the word liturgy?
1: Well, obviously, it has two different meanings depending on how you look at it, and they are somewhat similar. Liturgy really comes out of the Greek, and uh, and and it basically equates to service. Or sometimes it was known in the Greek as a public service or something. Someone, a public official or something, would do for the public which was usually in a forum or some sort of public place. But when it comes to Christianity in the West, which tends to be where we use this term a lot, although Buddhism and, of course, Islam and others have forms of liturgy as well, it's not just specific to Christianity, but it it really is a subset of ritual mm. in its purest form. And basically liturgy refers to formal rituals, which may or may not be elaborate, enacted by those who understand that they, through them, are participating in some sort of interaction with the divine. Mm. So you almost get easily, more easily say that liturgy is simply formalized rituals, elaborate or not, that those who do them do to interact with the divine. And that's it. Mm.
0: I think that, yeah, that's, that absolutely, I, I, I agree with that. Um, and I think to add some I guess, colloquial words or, 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 um, uh, vocabulary to this, uh, the vernacular, that's the word I wanted. Um, really is it, it, it is the, that ritual is the kind of form or formula that your public religious worship setting tends to follow, right? Um, it is the steps of worship that, that your church or community, whatever that community is, has established uh, for the most intentional connection with God in that setting. So if you are someone who grew up doing, during, or doing family worship you know, with your mom and dad, your siblings, whomever, um, then that, there was a liturgy to that one way or another. Yeah. If it looked the same every time, there was a liturgy. Um, if you've been to small group, uh, if, you've, if you've been involved in a small group or a life group or anything like that, there was a liturgy. Um, there was usually a structure we teach when we do high school, small group leadership, we do teach a structure and format for, for students to follow, um, when they're leading small groups. And, and so it's really any of that. It's the, so basically there is no escape from liturgy. I think that that's kind of the, the, the point I want to make is there, there is no, even a lack of liturgy is still liturgy. And the. The. So if you go if you've been involved in some big non denominational like a megachurch, um, the you are involved and, and you think, yeah, I've I've escaped all that liturgy. No, you haven't. They follow a liturgy. It's just that I, I'm gonna the, say
1: liturgy sometimes takes forms that you wouldn't even expect. Take Quakers, for example. Mm. If anyone's ever been to a Quaker service, and part of a Quaker service is the idea that Everyone sits in silence until the Holy Spirit moves on one of their members to speak or to do the teaching or or something else. This is something actually the charismatic movement really looks up to, and it also shows that the charismatic movement, this kind of ties into our talk about emotionally overthinking and whatever from past episodes, the idea that this predated it, but they have something they literally call the liturgy of silence, that it's a very structured intentionality of being silent and nothing happening. Hmm. Yep. Right. And it, and they literally yep. refer to that as part of the liturgy. So this is a liturgy of nothing happening. Yes, exactly. And yeah. the, so the idea, I
0: think that the problem that we run into a lot of people run into is there, they associate liturgy with a more, uh, tradition or historical version or form of, of liturgy of the, you know, Basically singing from a hymnal. Yeah. Of high church. Well, conservative high church. Uh, a progressive high church so, is very much the high church still. Um, but yes, concern you know, that that traditional sitting in pews, standing for uh, during the offering and singing, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Um, anything like that.
1: And that's more in the Protestant traditions, of course. I think a lot of pop culture even thinks of liturgy. When they think of liturgy, they think of either the orthodoxy or Roman Catholic traditions, Mm -hmm. and something where you have vestments and different tools at an altar, yes, and processes and chants and things that have to be repeated or incense being waved, or they think of all of these structured pictures and pieces of a puzzle.
0: Absolutely. Uh, So so I hope that 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 gets that gets all of that is to basically say all of us participate in liturgy in some way shape or form if we are partaking in any sort of religious experience or service um whether that's hanging out with friends or whether that is uh going to an actual church service so um the way that i like to kind of uh the way that i like to describe liturgy in general is to say that liturgy is the framework that gives stability and order to worship so um, think of it, think of it. And I think I'm going to bring this up a little bit later too, but, but, but think of it kind of like, um, Starbucks. If I go to Starbucks, any Starbucks in the world, I know that I'm going and I order a, you know, a tall vanilla latte because I'm basic and that's you about, you know, the only you're going to pay I too kn- much money. I know I'm going to pay too much money, but the exact amount of too much money and, uh, everywhere I go, unless taxes in that state are different. Um, and I'm going to get virtually the same product unless the people were working badly that day, right? Um, it's always going to be the same. There's a stability, there's a f- sense of familiarity and, and comfort um, in the fact that I can go to any Starbucks and get the same thing. So a liturgy for a church very much provides stability and comfort to its, uh, to its members and to its participants, uh, its regular participants. Humans don't like change. Even those who say they like change don't like change. They just like change that they are advocating for, but they don't like change going against, you know, that they haven't asked for. And so going into a worship service, knowing what that traditional structure is, knowing that there's an agreed upon by the community way that we're going to go about this worship service prevents surprises. It prevents, um, prevents that disc, that sense of discomfort, um, and so it does provide a sense of stability and order to things, whether or not that order and stability is a good thing long-term or a bad thing long-term. It just does. That's what it does. Um, something that is evil or something that is bad can absolutely still be stable. Um, stable is just the fact that it's not, it's not going to be shaken by anything right now. Right? So uh, that's tends to be how I would describe it. So what I'd love to do is give some examples of different types of liturgy, uh, that we've experienced. So, Henry, what are some what are some different kind of religious service structures or things that you have uh, that you have experienced?
1: Well, obviously, there would be our common background in a denominational setting, yeah, which, which tends to be our our version of Protestantism, Seventh Day Adventists. And though that can change, obviously in certain slight variations depending on if it's quote more conservative or more liberal, what I do find is there's a lot of similarities between them still. Yeah. Uh, usually the biggest thing that changes is the style of music or the length of the sermon, and that's about it. If we if we want to really get, you know, technical about it, we still follow a lot of the same things. And by a lot of the same things I mean There are certain expectations, at least the whole time I've been in the church growing up, of things that you would have. You would have a welcome, and then you're going to have songs, some sort of song service, and then you've got to ask for the offering, and then you're going to have some sort of prayer, corporate prayer setting, and then you have to have some story for the children, and then someone's going to read a scripture, and then you're going to have a sermon, and then you're going to have a closing song, and we're done. Yep. Right? And you can change the content of all those little things, but it's still all those little parts had better be in there, to the point that I can remember when I first started pastoring, I was pastoring a couple churches in the middle of nowhere, and one of these churches had no young people. And by no young people, I mean I was the youngest person there and I was the minister. Oh, so like my churches. Yeah, basically, but here's the thing. They still had something they called children's story Mm. in the service, which is supposed to be a time that you invite all the little kids up under like 10 or whatever, and you tell them a story that's supposed to be more specifically tailored to their age group. They still had this in the service and they did this every single week, even though, and someone would get up there and read a children's story, you know, book or, or something else, and there was no kids.
0: I feel like they did that just in case a kid ever came.
1: Well, and, and there is something to be said about that. I'm not trying to pick on the fact, like, yeah, that's the thing we should jettison. I'm just trying to give as, as evidence that's how kind of set in this liturgy, a lot of us are, and that it must continue whether the people it's supposedly targeting are there or not. Mm. Like, I think it's wise to have one prepared in case kids show up, but the idea that everybody's over 70 and you're still having a kid story, although some might argue that might be the only thing they heard because they fell asleep during the sermon, but
0: you know I mean if they're all enjoying it, so be it. More power to them. I disagree with having it in case one family shows up with a kid because all you're gonna do is basically spotlight on that put a spotlight on that guest and most most research has shown that you know having the visitors stand up or any sort of acknowledgement that they exist is one of the biggest turnoffs and guarantees that they won't be coming back um so yeah i that very much i have uh, uh, very much i've seen that so yes and no i agree with having something on deck but at the same time i don't necessarily think it should be done in a way that still singles out a newcomer. So that's all. Oh, oh
1: definitely. Don't, don't stand up and be like, wow, we have a kid today, so we're going to do children's story. Why don't you come up here, kiddo? Where are you from? Yeah, Correct.
0: Do yeah. Nope. Couldn't agree more.
1: But, but anyway, now that I've gotten us off track talking about the finer points of something called children's story or not, I guess my point is I've had that experience mm-hmm. with our own liturgy in that way. And to the point that whether you like it or not, it is very glaringly obvious when it doesn't happen. hmm Like even parts say like that, a children's story or something that I might be like, why are we even doing this? If I go visit a church, one of our churches or something, and it doesn't happen, yeah, something feels awkward. Yep. I'm like I'm like, wait, what did I miss that? Was that part supposed to happen? Right? Or to the point where I've showed up at church. This has happened a lot in this current job. I've showed up to churches that weren't very clear at when their starting time was. Mm. And I've made an assumption that most of our churches whether, you know, like a lot of denominations, whether they're Saturday or Sunday in, in Protestant circles, it tends to start at 11, the quote divine hour. That's a liturgy, that's a tradition, if you will. And, you know, I've shown up before and they've started it earlier, mm. right? And I will look through the back windows or doors or whatever from the foyer, if it's one of those churches and see. And usually by just looking, I can figure out what's going on and then I immediately know where in the service they are. Mm-hmm. Because so many of our churches just continue in the same way. So I can be like, oh, good, I didn't miss that, because that wouldn't happen before this. Yeah. Yep. And it's kind of funny that I assume that, because nothing says they can't, they just don't. Yep. Uh, so that, I mean, that would be one illustration. I, I guess another illustration, just by way of that, is in my military chaplaincy stuff that I, I do— I'm obviously having to minister to different faith communities than mine, including those that are more what we would call a Reformed tradition. Mm. When it comes to Protestant circles, by Reformed tradition, I mean something like Anglican, Lutheran, uh, you know, Presbyterian, this, this kind of thing, which by Reformed, they mean they're more like Roman Catholic liturgy, but there are some differences. Mm-hmm. And by that, for our listeners, I would mean think more cultural high church in the sense of the Eucharist or the communion, as it's often called in, in Protestant circles, this happens as part of every service mm-hmm. because it's a sacrament. So there's this idea that there's a chalice and that there's the breaking of the host, or the, the, the emblem over it. Go ahead and, and define
0: certain- sacrament for us.
1: Yes, okay, S- sacrament is just a fancy way of saying a ritual, usually as part of the liturgy, that has some efficacy to it for your salvation, and What I, and which is another big word. So basically, if I really dumb this down, a sacrament is a ritual that you do that allows you to receive or access God's sal- saving grace in some mm-hmm. way, shape, or form. So in other words, for example, the, the Eucharist— well, Protestants will often call the communion, so the bread and the wine, or the bread and the grape juice, or however you want to call it. In a a lot of non-high liturgical churches, to us, they're just symbols. Yeah. Right. So we're like, okay, this represents His blood, this represents His body, and I do this to remember things. Well, in a sacramental setting, uh, the most common obviously being Roman Catholicism, Eucharist, what they call the transubstantiation, the idea that when they say a certain liturgical prayer... And go through a certain ritual with it, it actually turns into the literal body and blood of Christ and therefore has a salvific element to it. Mm. So in other words, by me accessing those symbols from the priest or the assistant or whoever's giving it to me, I am actually not just remembering something, I am receiving the saving grace of God in that moment. Through this in this moment, through this transaction. Gotcha. Right? So a sacrament and a sacrament isn't just the Eucharist. Baptism is considered a sacrament. Uh, things like this that a lot of people will be familiar with. So, in other words, it's not just a symbol; it is something that you're actually receiving some sort of transaction from. The there, divine there is through.
0: correct. There's, there's power yeah. in the act, in the act or the ritual, uh, beyond the sim, beyond
1: the symbolism of it. There's actual power in that. Correct. Which is why, of course, in the Middle Ages, one thing that was very scary about excommunication, for example, is that you lost access to the people that would do, say, the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Which man, if I lose access to that, I'm not receiving that dispensation of grace. Well, that's what we see with with Catholicism
0: in the middle of this right now, with with the Pope basically saying, "Hey, in because you can't, uh, because you can't do confession right now, uh, feel free to take your prayers directly to God um, in the absence of a well, priest." Right, and, a, that's the and, idea,
1: and, and not and, right, and not to pick on them either. Let's be fair to our own faith group. I think we're going to get into this a little bit later in the notes. In fact, I think our next point after you share a couple of illustrations of what you've experienced is, is to this very point about idolizing it. We see a lot of this even in our own faith community and among Protestants who believe that now because we can't physically meet in church buildings mm. and go through our liturgies, somehow we're not exercising faith or our faith is suffering or we're somehow missing out on the blessings of God or, or something like that. Like There's actual great fear among the general faith communities that because we can't meet, we're somehow losing out access to God or, or something that He wants to do for us. Correct. Yes, um, it's the exact same mentality yeah. whether we think it's actually coming through a sacrament or just by virtue of being there. And
0: and I guess to be to be one hundred percent clear too, we're not saying that baptism or the Eucharist or, or the different aspects of the Eucharist or communion are are all sacraments one hundred percent objective fact. We're just saying that those are what are traditionally thought of as sacraments um, in different circles, but just because someone says something is a sacrament doesn't mean it actually, you know, is one. Um, so we're not advocating for or against anything specific here. We're just explaining what people are talking about when they say the word sacrament. If that yeah. right,
1: generally, generally held. And so yeah, that would be the the two examples very likely I just gave. Both our own experience in kind of low church Protestantism, and then in a more military setting where I have to deal with a lot of the high reformed, high church settings such as the Eucharist yeah. are, are are certain sacraments yep. and things like that, that I've had to now be taught and know how to give mm-hmm. and how to say the prayers and in what order and et cetera to, to minister to people that, that that's very meaningful to them. So yeah. that's my example.
0: Yeah, no, no. So I'll speak to the more kind of progressive side of things as far as not saying that you're not or are, but just because that tends to be where my experience more likely, more often tends to be. I'm involved in a progressive church currently. Um, the the traditional model that i see happen in progressive circles see what i did there um tends to be uh. some form of this you open with a song with a with a contemporary worship song then uh one of two things happens either you keep playing music or right after the first song you have a host come up and do the welcome and say some announcements and then retransition into the music if that doesn't and then what'll happen is uh, then the band will play anywhere from two to three songs, sometimes four, and then immediately after that is one of two things: either prayer, or uh, it transitions directly into the sermon. And then they'll end with a song, and then prayer and closing announcements. And it will always follow that kind of format. If if there's not welcome and prayer after the you know after the first or welcome and announcements after the first song, it's usually then after the fourth song. So they'll play all or three or four songs right up or they'll play four songs right off the bat. Then they'll do the welcome announcements, prayer, and go straight into the sermon. Um, it just completely depends on what church you're in. But it's some variation of that. Um, and to be honest, the, the bigger a church kind of gets, the less interactive or small family, uh, s- small family interaction style that you get, the more um, it really does become high church regardless of whether it's progressive or conservative it definitely becomes high church which is a the way that i would describe high church is there's a there's a very very defined order to things that isn't really going to change everyone is kind of expected to follow it when they walk in the door um there's no um there's no real spontaneity to the service it's very very predictable um and um in i would say in conservative circles it's easier to identify high church because typically you're dressing, you're, you're dressing up more. You're dressing in your Sabbath or Sunday best, right? Um, typically, that's the case. It doesn't feel like I've just kind of gathered together and I'm worshiping together, but rather I've come for a program that I'm going to well, experience. Well, I mean, high church,
1: by its, high church by its very definition is more than just liturgy. It's an idea that you're also resisting modernization. Yeah. That's part of the package. yes. Uh, This idea that being in touch with how we've always done it, which, again, we're not saying these things are bad in and of themselves. There is something to to understanding or continuing things that have happened for a while. I mean, I I do think it's quite traditional as well that people believe Jesus resurrected on that Sunday morning of Easter. Mm. So, you know, and I'm not going to be like, well, you know, that's not modern, so let's dump it. Yeah. That's not what we're meaning either. We're just saying that high church tends to be both in liturgy and eschatology and in theology much more put in such a way to, like you said, it's much more limited in who's participating with it, and it's resisting anything modern. Mm, Absolutely. So let's
0: talk about um, transition to something you kind of touched on, which is, you know, the ways in which liturgy has been used to harm. So if you are someone who has experienced any of these first of all I'll say that we're sorry that you have that should never have happened um, and you know we we do feel terrible that that has happened to you um, but we want to talk about the ways that this is we want to identify those ways so that we can then talk about solutions and how we how we move forward from there um, and I think the the first one that I would talk about is basically liturgy itself being idolized and this is what Henry already mentioned with that we're seeing in 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 some expressions in protestantism i can say words uh protestantism Mm -hmm. which is uh this idea of if we can't do what we've always done then something is terribly wrong we've lost access to god or we're not doing it right if we can't do what we've always done in other words the power is being seen in the ritual or the the liturgy itself that form and order and structure rather than the 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 god that it's meant to honor so um, this, the idea being, if the liturgy is disruptive, if something happens that disrupts the order of things and the established order of things, uh, then God won't be honored that God can't actually be honored at that point that we've lost the.
1: And if he's not honored, then we are also missing out in a salvific way.
0: Correct. So, um, th- that, that's the first thing I would say. And you've noticed this, if you've seen anyone who, um, has, uh, told you that X is not appropriate to do here. Or why is not appropriate to do here we don't we don't we don't uh this that we don't do that here now there there's one there's a sense of saying that, and just meaning like, yeah, we're a community, we've agreed to do something, and like that's not part of what we do sure uh we don't sacrifice children that's not when we are idolizing we're not idolizing liturgy in those moments. what I'm saying is when someone is bringing a legitimate kind of idea to the table or when or you know a change to things um the idea is that the liturgy cannot be disturbed because of the power the liturgy holds itself, not just because it's the community's established way of doing church life and and doing the church service. Does that make sense?
1: Right. And and, and again, we're not trying to say that liturgy in and of itself is bad. We're not trying to pick on any of these high church or more heavy liturgical services by any means. In fact, I— you know, I, I could be honest, there's many things about high liturgy that I actually like and wish we would incorporate into our own faith tradition. I can agree with but, that. Yeah, but that not being either here or there, you know, I, I think our, our point is when it it moves from being a tool to being the idol. Yep. And right, to the point I mean I mean, and we're not the first to do that. Christians aren't the first I mean, Judaism did this with the temple. Mm. You know, first century Judaism, and even right before that, where the thing that was supposed to be the place where they accessed God became more important than God himself. Yes,
0: exactly. That's, that's the idea here. I think, um, and I think the, the, the next thing I would identify in this is, is um, an inflexible liturgy that doesn't meet the needs of those who participate in it. Um, the, the most common identifier of this is when I, your church community changes over time typically, (laughs) um, right. New people come in, people move away. Um, you know, people die, people leave the church, people come into the church and join the church, move to the area, whatever. Um, what ends up happening in a lot of cases, and I, and I experienced this when I was full-time pastoring was there were aspects of the service and not even just aspects of the service. I would say there were literal things in the church, like physical ways that the church was arranged and things that were present in the church. Um, that when I asked why we do these things or why we have these things here, they said, we don't know. We just assumed someone would be mad if any of us asked about it. Like that was the consistent response was I thought someone else wanted it there. I was afraid of bothering someone if we moved it. It doesn't, it's not doing anything for me. It's the idea of eventually you are doing this thing for your, in your community or in your liturgy, you're doing this. You have this addition to the service or something that isn't actually meeting the needs of those that are participating in it anymore. But everyone is just doing that liturgy, or refuses to change it because, um, and they can't even always vocalize why. Um, in this, in in I would I would argue to some extent that the children's church example you gave at the beginning is is a good example of this. It's this inflexible thing. We're not changing it, regardless of whether or not we have kids here. <laughs> We're going to keep doing this, um, even though it's not for us. And that's. That's where I think liturgy becomes something that is being used, I think I think it's lacking the intention that liturgy should have, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it's not, it's not passing on the blessings of the people who originally thought it up or were incorporating it, and it's stunting the growth and the needs of the people now. It's kind of like, I'm going to have to remember who said this, it's not original to me, but somebody once said that tradition was the living faith of the dead traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Right, so in other words at some point when anybody was coming up with these liturgies there was some reason why they did it. Yes. Right? They just haven't always existed. Now yeah, maybe some of them have been around for a couple thousand years now, but the point is they weren't around for all human history.
0: Yeah. There is
1: a reason why something got started and somebody had to be the first to do it and there was a group of first people that had to interact with it. Yes. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that and and it was obviously you would assume it had to have been meaningful, or why would they have done it to start with? Yeah. Right? So there's nothing wrong with that, and in fact, there's something great to be said. This is another one of the positives of liturgy, before people think we're just picking on it too much. There is something that liturgy can teach us about what was meaningful to the community before us. It has historical significance, absolutely. Yes, and, and can give us clues as to—because there are certain things about humanity that never changes— and it tells us how the church used to, or a community used to know how to minister to people in certain situations. Hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem comes when we are so far removed from it, we have no idea what they were trying to do. We have no idea what it was actually trying, you know, what it could accomplish. And we're continuing it because it's just always been done. And it's, nobody's really feeling like they're getting anything out of it and they do it anyway.
0: Yep. Yeah. Well, and I've, I've, I've seen this too with, um, when I, when I was pastoring, I, uh, I had suggested, and some members had actually suggested this as well, that we do some sort of kind of outdoor church service between both of our churches and even meeting with a, uh, with a third church in the area that identified as, you know, within our denomination, but not a part of our specific conference. So this, if you're Adventist and listening, it was a regional conference church. That's the easiest way to identify her for it. Um, and basically the rest of the members in both in, in, in all of these churches were like, no, that would disrupt our normal Saturday. Like we can't, we can't do that. Um, we have to meet in church together. What if, what if there's a guest that comes and, and that Sabbath we're, we're, you know, that Saturday we're closed. Uh, we're not there because we're at this, you know, outdoor church or this, this, you know, there's this, or, you know, I can't worship there. I'm worshiping here. um, There was, this is what I mean by inflexible. There's no give, there's no give on, um, on the way we do things because the way we do things is where the power is. So, um, that's, that's one, or at least where we feel the most comfortable. Um, so yeah, that, that's definitely one. Um, the next one, being told that one method or structure or form of worship is the only way to worship. It is the only approved way of worship.
1: Oh, you're going to get me on a soapbox on this.
0: Uh, me as well. Um, don't worry. We don't have plenty of time. Uh, <laughs> no, this happens. All, this is all the time. Youth, youth run into this, I think, more than anyone to some extent. Um, youth and young adults, when they say like, hey, can we do can we add this kind of music or can we add uh, can we do this to in the service? And they're like, no, we can't. That's inappropriate. That's not at all. Okay um why would you even suggest that this has this has pagan origins or this has occult origins or you know there's there's some you know i hear a lot of conspiracy stuff tied to why we can't do certain things in the worship service um and the like it's really sad to me because we're seeing this even on a i would say an elevated not an elevated level a broader scale and and something that is much more kind of has deeper roots and is more nebulous, but we see this, uh, play into, um, into issues with racism. And, uh, I was going to say that's
1: where my soapbox gets. Same, same here. Uh, I mean, a a, a lot of it, oh, I mean, how many times have you heard, and it usually is the most prevalent with music. Yes. of music. Uh, but people will say something like, and I know in our own denominational persuasion, there were some very key individuals that had presentations and stuff on this and would say phrases like this. They're like, well, don't you know, not only does that come out of paganism, but they'll always reference some African tribe or some, you know, Satanist demononic cult from Africa Yep. that has a beat like that or something else like that to summon demons or whatever, and therefore... We can't do it, and I'll never forget the day it dawned on me, and I don't remember if it dawned on me because someone said this or just because someone said something that triggered me to kind of formulate it in my head like this, but the idea was like, wait a minute. Isn't it curious that all the demonic places that supposedly all the inappropriate music and everything comes from happens to be on the continent of Africa? Yep. Yep. Like, I, it's just the day that... Da- I was like, wait a minute. Why is it that only the Africans are apparently so stupid that they can always get caught up in demon worship and fooled? Yes. Why is it the Europeans that know what the correct form of whatever is that God likes? Yes. I mean, just because Handel wrote the Messiah does not mean that now Europeans have, you know, a corner market on the Messiah.
0: Bro, it kills me. <laughs> it kills me that that the idea of a multicultural church service for in, in in traditionally white churches is basically late 90s contemporary music that's the idea it's acoustic and a piano maybe a cajon if they're feeling edgy um and then it's how great is our god god of wonders mighty to save um it's songs like that with maybe one other contemporary song thrown in um, or uh, it kills me. I don't know. I don't know what denominations this song is sung in. Uh, but Days of Elijah—that's a—that's a rowdy one that the kids will love. Oh, that the yeah. youths will love. Uh, I have a friend that if, he,
2: if he ever
0: heard this, he would kill. He hates that song. Which fair point. I, <laughs> I don't. I'm not. I'm a not fan a big of. of yeah. Exactly. Same here. So I don't necessarily blame him for it. But I do think it's it. It just is. It's funny. Um, but no, absolutely. Like. Specific cultures are completely rejected um, because of some random air pull of yeah this was rooted in some paganism or this was rooted in some occult practice and then there's no source cited for it ever. Pagan is the yeah. catch-all term for we don't like
1: whatever it came from for it, it, for Christians right yeah we'll just call it it's got it's kind of the ad hominem argument of religious war yes. Where there's just culture wars. It's like, you know, an ad hominem argument being if you can't win on the facts, you just insult the person, right? Yep. So they're like, yeah, but the facts don't say this. Yeah, well, you're stupid. Yeah. You're ugly. It's you. Yeah. That's kind of what we do here. It's like, yeah, but there's nowhere in the Bible that it says you can't do this music. Yeah, but well, it's demonic and comes from demon tribes. Yeah. And
0: you're like, wait, what? In reality, they just don't want to say that they don't like it, so they don't want to use it. That's that's typically what happens um
1: yeah on the flip side just to show that we're equal opportunity showing how dumb certain things are it's like I, I remember there was an individual in one of my churches when i first started pastoring who hated neckties now i'm not saying they're the best thing known to god's earth either or that they're necessarily ne- necessary for worship but as you know I, I, I was in a more traditional context which means people dress up in suits and ties and mm-hmm. stuff for for church and this particular individual did not like that and so literally got up during a a small group discussion time in the church, like a Sabbath school, Sunday school kind of setting, and decided to show us all the evidence that the tie was really a pagan symbol that represented genitalia, used in ancient Greece for whatever. And blah, blah, blah 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 blah, and that yeah, you've probably heard yep. this before, and this was proof why we shouldn't wear ties. And I was kind of like, okay, I, I'm not even the hugest fan of ties, but really. again it's the ad hominem argument of the worship wars yeah well it's this dumb pagan thing to which i want to go has anyone read paul's talks about intrinsic versus imposed realities and things Um, probably nope
0: yes that that's accurate
1: um so this this
0: i mean this is the most pervasive form of it is um and and connected to that um is that having one's own structure or style of worship rejected um is, is, is kind of the other side of, of the one we just mentioned, being told that one method of worship is, is the only right way. Uh, the implicit result of that is that you're told that your preferred way or you know, your traditional way is improper is re- and, and we are rejecting it. Um, this one tends to be where the last one really becomes the most impactful for people uh, because it is in many cases when someone's way of worship is criticized, uh, they feel as though they themselves as a person are being criticized um and whether whether or not that's a good or bad thing um it's real if you tell me that my cultural way of doing church is outright evil then absolutely i will feel like you are you are offending me
1: well, you're basically calling someone a, a fool, an agent of the devil. Yes, that's exactly what you're doing. So, so I'm not saying that you
0: feeling like uh, you've like you you personally are being rejected is a wrong thing to feel. In some cases, that's exactly what's happening. Um, I don't want to say that in hundred percent of cases, and there are, I would say something. I mean, like I said. There are some there are some principles and things that if we're not doing them in a worship service, for example, if we're not ever worshiping God in said worship service, then it's probably not appropriate for a worship service. Do you know what I mean? Like at some point, going in and as I mentioned earlier, sacrificing children probably not the best option
1: for liturgy. Although to be fair, and I've said this before, and you're just giving me a great opening with your continual references to child sacrifice. Whenever. I read in the First Testament about when Israel became obsessed with idolatry, either in practice or in literal idols. It always ended in the sacrifice of children. Yep. And nowadays, with a lot of worship styles or certain liturgy preferences or whatever, again, not that in and of themselves they're bad, but when I see the Church Make idols out of them. It always ends in the sacrifice of children. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying literally putting them on stuff and burning them in fire, but literally sacrificing their religious experiences, sacrificing their faith community access, sacrificing their faith development. It nothing new under the sun. Idolatry always ends in the sacrifice of children. Period.
0: Mm-hmm. It's like you can almost predict it. <laughs> um, it is, and or if and if not, the the sacrifice may not even be. Um, at least in today's society, with when you when you see cults take off, it may not even be the sacrifice of their life, but it may be the subjugation of them completely. Right? They um, mm. they they exist. Women and children usually exist for the for the pleasure and at the leisure of uh, the the cult leader. It's like a consistent thing. Um,
1: in which point that he uses sexuality as a sacrament. Correct. So that's a whole different yep. topic.
0: So. Um, these are, these are some of the ways that, that liturgy has been used to cause harm. We're not saying that they're the only ways or, um, that these are the only ways that have, but these, this covers a pretty broad spectrum. Um, so I, um, I, I think now we're going to move into how should we actually be regarding liturgy? Um, how should we actually, you know, what, what is its role in church life? What do we actually do with it? And, and. You know, is it something that we should embrace or something that we should try and and minimize as much as possible? Like where where do you and I stand, especially when it comes to, you know, someone coming back to faith, someone, you know, re-exploring what their what a newer faith in Jesus might look like. And as they've abandoned some of their old ways of doing things, um, they may feel the temptation to many do feel the temptation to abandon everything about their old way of doing faith because some elements of it were dangerous or harmful to them as an individual or to the people around them so how do we actually begin to regard liturgy and and what what should we do with with all of this um and um the the first thing i want to do um is simply say this i think the first clarification in all of this i want to make is being told how to worship and church liturgy are not the same thing (laughs) um if you are told this is the way you must worship that that doesn't it's not liturgy um now the way that they are the way that they're actually telling you to do to worship is liturgy right the way that they're actually worshiping um however it is not the sum total of liturgy Liturgy is not just one expression. I think the one thing that's been kind of a banging drum on this episode is that liturgy takes so many different forms and looks different for every community that 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 experiences it. And so, I, I I the way that I would put this the best is that liturgy is a descriptor of worship, but it's not a prescription for worship. Right. So it's not I'm telling you how to do worship. It's it's this is how we are doing. Like this is I'm just telling you. This is the way that we do worship. I'm describing it to you.
1: Right. Lit- liturgy can be a component of worship, but it is not the sum total of worship. And if you—I mean, that, that gets into a whole other topic we could have about this concept. Is worship a way of life or is it an event? Yes. And that's something that's shared among Protestant, high church, low church, no structure, all structure, everything. They all—we all tend to conflate the event as worship. They always say, welcome to worship. Mm. And that's another pet peeve of mine. The the longer I go on my own faith journey, is that I'm starting to realize worship is every aspect of your life. It is not a one hour event on a Saturday or Sunday morning or a Friday night or a Wednesday or a Tuesday or a whenever. Yeah. And it's no wonder that that's not enough to sustain
0: a lot of a lot of Christians. I once did the math on this. I'm gonna. I'm using my phone as a light for those of you that don't know. If you're on Patreon, you get the video form of these episodes uh, each week now. Um. Uh, I'm gonna try and pull it up. Let's see if I can pull it up in any recent amount of time. But I did the math on this at one point because I was curious. Like, let's say we spend an, a- let's sp- say we spend two hours in church every day, um, or not every day, every Saturday or every Sunday, right? Um, there is 168 hours in a week. This is the math I was doing, um, and you spend two of it in church, and somehow we expect that the two hours that we spend are enough to fuel us for the other 166.
1: Yeah, it doesn't it, work. It's
0: completely outrageous in just pure logistical terms. That's purely outrageous. And so um, it, worship is certainly more than just what happens in that church service. And tying, tying worship to what we do in a public setting and corporate worship is, is is inappropriate at best and downright dangerous and actively harmful to faith at worst. So yes, could not agree more with that. Um, so, what what would you say? What would you say? Liturgy looks like when used properly. What you know? What is a good? What is a good expression of liturgy? What are some signs of a good good form of liturgy?
1: Well, again, like all tools, it's how it's used. I mean, a hammer is very useful for putting a nail in, but you can also murder somebody with it. Mm-hmm. So it's how do you use the tool? I, I think appropriate liturgy should be something that directs the mind towards a positive experience with deity. Hmm. And I'm going to stress that, a positive experience with deity. That's literally it, because if the thing isn't helping you both individually, and and maybe I could even specify that, liturgy should be a tool that successfully and positively helps the individual and the corporate community interact with Yeah. It. And when I, and and I I I'm I'm going to cut in there really
0: quick to say to to clarify what you even mean by positive because positive doesn't mean that you leave it feeling good all the time. Sometimes the most posi- positive means that it grows you. And so it can challenge you, it can convict you, it can call you out. Um there it
1: can bring discomfort. Yes. The idea that we've stripped discomfort out of our services has been a great disservice to all of us. And I'm saying that to my own self where I'm human and there's certain services or liturgies or whatever that I don't particularly like, and I feel awkward with, but then I realize I need that. They're transformative moments. Yes, exactly. So, um, I,
0: I just wanted to to add that in because I I don't want us to be someone who, you know, people who just chase, um, whatever form of dopamine hit that we can get out of a church service or out of, you know, out of corporate worship. So, or any sort of private worship experience. So yeah, that definitely important to add. Um, I think the I, I you know I think another proper expression of liturgy is a flexible liturgy is one that is not the you know by definition it isn't the thing that we're worshiping, but what I mean by that is you know the church is willing the the, the community is willing to always reevaluate it right uh truth is not threatened right what was it truth is not- uh not threatened by tr-
1: yeah tr- truth is never threatened by investigation correct,
0: so the same thing is you know true worship of god is not is not um threatened by disruption <laughs> it's really not and so tr- if it's true it will still be true at the end of exactly the so if if your church is i i think if your if your community i won't even say church but if your community is not so tied to the liturgy and and is tied to just making sure that they are they that everyone is worshiping god um it doesn't mean that the liturgy will look different every week but they are always willing to reevaluate to question and to look at the way that they're doing the way that they're structuring their worship to ask, is this the best thing for our community, as well as are the best way that that we know of within within our own expression of worship to actually
1: honor God? Um, yeah. Another way you could you could put it is liturgy should be a fuel, not a rocking chair. Yes, I love that. Right, because fuel means it's going in something and propelling it in some direction. A rocking chair, you have a lot of movement, but you don't get anywhere. Yeah. And I feel like when when liturgy settles into a rocking chair, so you feel like you're doing something. But you're not making any progress to go anywhere, then it's lost its. Point.
0: I've been using rocking chairs wrong my whole life. I rock very violently, and I do end up, you know, moving in a direction outside of back. Have and you forward. always
1: noticed, though, that when you move a rocking chair violently, it always moves you backward, never forward? Yes, all the time. That's a great, that's a great point. And if you do move, which is why when people fight yeah. liturgy aggressively, in a non-appropriate way, it's a good illustration. You always go backward yep. as a community. And even you if you actually make any progress. Even in the rare instance where you do move forward, you've either already
0: moved back a ton, so you're moving forward is still behind where you were originally, or you'll immediately undo the forward movement by going backwards because you were predisposed to going backwards. Because you're trying to make sure you don't fall out. Yep, that's exactly it. Um, so... I I would say that, yeah, liturgy used properly definitely enables and empowers a stronger, more intentional encounter and connection with deity. Um, Absolutely. So how do we, um, as as we're winding down here, uh, how do we unhinge ourselves from the improper ways that liturgy has harmed our faith? So if I'm someone who's really been damaged by the way that liturgy has been used, how do I begin to unhinge myself from it? And I think my My first suggestion here is I think that this conversation would it would be a good first step for a lot of people um just understanding having a proper understanding of what liturgy actually is I think is it can be the first step to freeing yourself from the improper ways it's been used against you um but i I don't know henry what else would you would you add here?
1: Well, I was going to say this is a great opportunity to do our continuing segment of saying therapy uh-huh. um and, and what I mean by that is even though the journey may be uncomfortable, every point of growth always requires self-reflection, right? And this is why I was going to say therapy, because therapists can assist you in finding safe ways to work through things that are traumatic and painful. Yes. Right? Because we recognize there may be some things you can't just sit there by yourself in your room trying to think about, or else you're going to turn into a puddle of goo and regress. Mm. Okay. But at the same time, that's not an excuse not to find a way to deal with it because the longer you don't deal with it, it just festers. And then it impacts other areas that you used to be able to deal with. So again, your emotional well being will be greatly served by a licensed clinical trained therapist. Yep. Get one. It's great. I've Try them out. Yes. <laughs> if you don't like one, try another. Yeah. Right. But anyway, so I mean, yeah, it's it's gonna have to be self reflection. Even on a corporate level, I think this takes communities being willing like you said to always self-examine and and reevaluate i think everything should be placed on first we need to be willing that everything goes on a table right and i'm not talking about cuz usually when you say this everyone freaks out dot com and acts dot i'm not i'm not saying that like quote the bible is up for debate i'm not saying like truth should be like yeah we're jettisoning this hmm. but i'm saying since liturgy is supposed to be how we're taking what we understand there and transmitting it to the wider universe or to the community, we should be willing to say that all of our methodology is up for debate. Yeah. Well, I,
0: I, right. I think a, an easy example of this, actually, I completely rearranged my room this morning. I was feeling very productive, um, and I had been wanting to move my bed around for a while, but there was a bunch of stuff under it, and I was lazy and didn't want to do all the cleaning that would be required in order to make my room look presentable uh, once I moved everything. And when I say move everything, the main thing I had to move was my bed and the rug underneath it. And what I quickly discovered as I pulled the bed away from the wall and tried to turn it was that as I tried to turn it, it would bump other things in the room and that would prevent me from being able to move the bed. And so in order to move the bed and to redo my room that way, I ended up having to move everything else out of the way. And the quickest way to move it was actually to throw everything on the bed <laughs> um, and get right. it completely out of the way. But the idea being the only way for me to move this one thing was for me to be willing to actually move and c- reconfigure other things.
1: That was the right, only way to a happen. a lot of liturgy is interconnected. Yes. Obviously. But, but this is what I'm saying. Everything should be on the table, or on the bed, at this point, in an appropriate way. I don't mean yeah. like some of our cults we were referencing earlier. But that, that being said, and the other thing we need to ask is, I think, two things. Probably, first of all... W- you know, what is this accomplishing now? Mm. Right. How is this impacting our community right now? Yep. Right. Because that doesn't mean if you're like, well, the community finds it useless. It doesn't necessarily in and of itself mean you need to jettison it, that it was useless. It might mean the community doesn't understand how to use it appropriately. Mm -hmm. It might be in the quote wrong spot or whatever. Right. You know, it's kind of like the, the joke you could say, even within our Adventist community, the liturgy of foot washing in and of itself isn't bad. But if you stick it at the beginning of praise service while everyone's singing and they're supposed to be washing feet while they sing at the same time, uh, <laughs> probably not going to work. Right. It doesn't mean it's necessarily bad, but that was really bad placement. Yeah. So it's just as a dumb analogy that that's basically it. You need to ask yourself. What is this accomplishing for us right now, good or bad? List it, you know, and corporately mm-hmm. get more than just your opinion on it. And can you, Put all that and together. I was going to say, and can you identify why something
0: is either bad or good beyond how, you, how it makes you feel?
1: Yes. In other words, feeling should be important. We talked about this again in the Emotionally Overthinking episode. Uh, I, I think both should be criteria that you ask, how is it affecting you? Yes. I think everything should be. How is this affecting you emotionally? That shouldn't be discounted. But we should also say, how is this impacting you intellectually? And I would say there's a higher burden on leadership to do this
0: than members. Though mem- I'm not not at all saying members shouldn't be doing. All of us should be doing this, right? Um, but when a leader, if a leader refuses change just because they don't like that change, then there that's a that's a sign of a very much deeper issue. Uh, so yes. that that's what I mean by that is. We should definitely be willing to not remove our own feelings from the equation, but remember and actively include factors beyond our own discomfort or comfort level um, in the deliberations for whether or not something is effective or worth doing or not doing.
1: Right. The intellectual and the emotional should both be taken into account, mm. as we talked about in that episode. Yes, there's a previous um, episode. Both, and 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 one might be, and you might be doing part of it very well, and the other part not. Mm-hmm. Right? So this, so basically, and that can move to the next step, once you've figured out how is it impacting you now, you can ask, well, what were we hoping to accomplish with all of mm. this? And see where that lines up or doesn't. Yeah. And once you see if it's—and and for example, in some ways it might be succeeding. Yeah. Right? I mean, one illustration that I think of, and this is just me personally, uh, I'll be honest, a lot of—let's just use music because that's a big area of liturgy that usually is the first place people fight over. As we've said before in the past, I I tend to like more hymology, more things that are a bit more old, just because I like classical settings a lot more. Mm -hmm. That being said, I will, I will admit, I find a lot of how do I say this? I find a lot of the music in hymology boring. So emotionally, it doesn't stimulate me, Mm -hmm. but I find the lyricism much better as far as its depth, or at least, even if yeah. I don't agree with its theology, its clarity of communicating what it's trying to communicate, I, I, I appreciate. Yeah. Whereas more contemporary quote music, praise music, I tend to like the musicality of it more, believe it or not, but I find its lyricism greatly lacking. Mm. This is just <laughs> me personally. And I'm not saying there aren't ones that are, and I do know of several more modern pieces that I love the lyricism to. Yeah. There, there is some powerful lyricism out there, too. I'm not saying that I don't want to stereotype anything. But I'm saying you might realize that when you start studying, you might go, hey, this thing is doing really good on the intellectual front. It is com with reaching people emotionally. Hmm. Right? Which might mean it might not be as clear-cut. Sometimes I think we think when we go into studying these things, it's going to be a clear-cut keep it or leave it. Yep. Right? Jettison it, replace it, or just keep it and don't touch it. There's a lot of room in between for tweakage. Yes. Absolutely. Which is right. So, in other words, there might be a lot of liturgies that, in and of themselves, they might be partially accomplishing what we're wanting, mm-hmm. but we might have to change something either on the emotional or the intellectual part. We might have to learn how to, maybe the, the liturgy in and of itself isn't bad, but we've lost a lot of the substance in some other interconnected area that means that it no longer is speaking a language anyone can understand. Yes. Couldn't agree more Right? With that. Because there's a, there's a lot of assumptions with words. We, we, it's one thing I think they've done studies about. A lot of times we use words like salvation and grace and whatever, and those in and of themselves aren't bad. or liturgy structured around it, but do people understand what they mean? A, a big one that really gets me that I deal with a lot, even currently, is baptism that is a liturgy. We have a liturgy of it. Well, well, here's the thing. <laughs> the liturgy of baptism, I don't think you have to change what you're doing with baptism, but I do think we're going to have to find new ways to prep people to experience it correctly, because I know too many people that view it as a graduation service instead of a, you know, basically, mm-hmm. you know, next step. In other words, there's a lot of people, at least in our particular denominational persuasion, that views baptism as this is the sign that I have obtained the higher point of existence, yeah. the plane of existence, versus this is a public mm-hmm. declaration of hold me to account, I'm signing up for accountability. Yep. And we're going to talk about baptism in a different episode, I'm sure. It will come up as yes. a full topic. Yes, we will. So, yeah. Um, right, but, but, but that, point, that point being, in one sense, you wouldn't have to necessarily change the act itself, the liturgy itself. Mm-hmm. As far as, okay, they're, you know, if you're in a service where you sprinkle or you dunk or whatever, you might feel like you don't have to change any of the process of doing that liturgy. But you might go, okay, experientially, people are liking this. Intellectually, they have no clue. Mm-hmm. So you might go, okay, we can keep this liturgy, but I'm going to need to revamp this other one over here that feeds into it mm-hmm. so that people are primed intellectually to then get the correct experience out of this part of the liturgy. Yes. In other, in other words, we can't—liturgy is another one of those hard areas where a lot, there's a lot of overlap, and it's not so easy to compartmentalize it, mm-hmm. right? I can't just go—and that's another thing that hurts us a lot when we have like worship wars over music and stuff like that, because a lot of people tend to think there's a music component, there's a sermon component, there's an offering component, whatever, and we don't realize there's a lot of overlap to these things. And if you view them as disjointed sections of the service— then you're going to get a disjointed experience. They should be feeding one another, right? And, uh, you know, again, picking on music, whatever the style. This is one thing I'm not like. If you do music poorly, right, whether it's contemporary or it's out of a hymnal, if you do it poorly, I found as a preacher, you negatively impact my sermon time. Yep. Um uh, so these things are interconnected. So I've never viewed music as like, ah, oh, it shouldn't matter. You know, sometimes you just throw anybody up there to sing or whatever or whatever. And you know, they think they have the great gift of singing, and unfortunately, none of us have the gift of listening to them. Oh, that's the same for preachers. And yeah, exactly. I mean, but I, I think one feeds the other. For example, it, I mean, think about it. How many times have you had a great music experience? Let's pause, let's praise the music for a moment. I have a great music experience. I'm like, yes, I'm excited, I'm on fire. I've just I'm I'm emotionally connected. And then the preacher get up and like swings and misses. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I'm talking like it's a complete whiff. And so by the time the same praise team or music leader or choristers or whatever, get up to sing the closing one, like I'm out of it already. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm like, and then I don't enjoy them as much because the setup just ruined it. Yep. Right. So a lot of this stuff is, is interconnected. We need to be willing to examine all of this stuff and then realize that the solution to fixing one might actually have less to do with that one than something related to yep. it.
0: Absolutely. Well, I, I love that. I love all of that. And I think um, a good way to end this is um, what I want to do is just share a couple things that I think are positive ways that we can be using liturgy. And Henry, you touched on one of them for sure, and and a few of them actually. Um, but here's, here's basically what I want to do is end on a way... Uh, that encourages us to actively look into and, and embrace liturgy in our lives. Because I, th- I I, think the the important thing is to understand that liturgy is not going anywhere. There's almost no avoiding it if you are a religious person in general, in any way, shape, or form. If you wouldn't use the word religious and say you're a spiritual person, liturgy still exists. Um, so if there's any sort of belief system, there's liturgy. Um. And so I want to talk about some of the positive ways that you can use it as—and and maybe you can use these as goals as you're going about your day or your week or, you know, your spiritual life and journey um, as goals or, or just kind of checkpoints, ways that you can identify if you're on the right track with this stuff. Uh, the first I would say—and, Henry, you touched on this one—is a positive way we can use liturgy is accountability. Um, It—the one thing— uh, is, that I'll I'll say to this is I did go through a phase in high school where I was very much you know Jesus over religion right Jesus is more than or greater than religion and I don't uh, I felt like going to church was harmful to my faith I've talked about this before but I um so I decided I could do more by just staying home and doing personal devotions and doing my own thing and what I quickly realized was um and this was a hard realization to come to because all it's kind of self-explanatory but what I realized was I wasn't doing anything in place of church, what I really was just doing was sleeping in every, every week, every Saturday, I would just sleep in, not actually go to church and, um, not read my Bible, not pray, not, I just sleep in and do whatever I wanted. In fact, I, I treat, treated the day less intentionally as a result, the liturgy, even, even down to the point of getting out of bed, getting ready to go and going to church, all of that played into holding me accountable to actually taking my spiritual life seriously. And so it's even if going to church felt like it was a negative experience, a far and worse experience was actually not doing anything at all. Um, so that was that's what I say when I say accountability. The other thing is I think that routine provides some sense of stability, and that can be a good thing. I've talked about that already. Um, but this idea of this kind of regular expectation that something going to ha- that something is going to happen um, is is a good thing. And it you know right now we're feeling the effects of that with COVID-19 because that's been disrupted. And there's a sense of loss that comes from not being able to do the things we normally did. Um, I go to a church where, you know, I'm involved in a church where the, I would, I would dare say, I would actually be comfortable saying that the majority of people there, this is one of the first times in their life where they've looked forward to going to church and they, they feel actively harmed or hurt when they're unable to worship together with the church community. For a lot of them, that oh, is yeah. the,
1: we, we love, we love tradition. I mean, think about picking on myself again with COVID-19. You said a lot of us are going crazy not having those traditional, quote, liturgies of life. And then we tell ourselves, oh, look, I got all this time now to do stuff I didn't do. And then I find myself still defaulting to just doing way more of what I used to already do, whether that's vegging on the couch uh-huh. or something else, just because it has a feeling of normality to it, even though it's going way too Yes. Long. So
0: it can provide some sense of stability. The other thing, too, is it can Used, it can be used as a connection point to provide familiarity to new people. Um, so, you, so, you know, as an Adventist, if I move to a different place, and, and once again, I've mentioned this already, I can go into an Adventist church and generally expect the same kind of thing um, everywhere I go. At least I can expect that I'll be going to church on a Saturday, um, and depending on what the building framework is, I can expect what kind of church service I'm going to attend to some level or some extent unless that church is going through a big transformation process in the way they do things that doesn't look the way, doesn't feel the way that the building implies that it would. Um, Absolutely a thing that happens. Um, So I, you know, but it it is, it can be used as a connection point for many people, especially new people. And the last thing I can say is this, as opposed to the problem in rejecting cultural heritage and, and styles of worship, liturgy can be used to celebrate those things and celebrate the people that are in your congregation um, and celebrate the ways that they have connected to God and acknowledge those ways and not just acknowledge and celebrate, but affirm them actively Um, to say that, yes, you are just as worthy and just as able to connect with God and worship God as I am, um, as we are. And, And it is a way to help people feel actually included in the worship service. And yes, that may come at a little bit of discomfort to you because it may not be the way that you've always done things. But I would dare say that any birthday party is also that. (laughs) Anytime that you've celebrated (laughs) anyone for any reason, you have invited yourself into a place of discomfort. Um, You know, my friend and I recently did a joint birthday party because we were born two days apart and we both have different circles of friends. And the friends that came to celebrate us did not know each other. And there was a big sense of discomfort there as they had to figure out like who they were going to talk to and make new friends and start new conversation. Um, we invite ourselves into discomfort all the time. And what I would say, what more intentional and better place to do that than in a worship service where all of us are there for the same purpose of worshiping God and under the same banner. Um, and we have this opportunity to, to, it, to show that everyone is worthy and valuable of, uh, um, in God's eyes and everyone is welcome to worship. Um, in 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 the way that they've traditionally done in many cases, I'm not gonna you know make a blanket. This is okay. Or this is not okay. But um, just in general, look for ways to celebrate the the community that you're a part of. Um, so yeah, that's that's where I want to end. Henry, do you have anything that you want to add here? Um, any final thoughts?
1: Well, obviously, as the title invests, we hope that by the end of this discussion and after some more work with your corporate community, that you can find a beautiful liturgy for yourself and your community. Liturgy in and of itself isn't bad. It's a tool. We want this tool in your toolbox of faith. And we recognize that it may take time to resharpen that tool or to learn how to use it correctly or to get over the fact that people will have picked up similar tools and use them against you inappropriately. Yep. Again, that's where therapy can come in. That's where healthy community can come in, et cetera. Uh, the only other thing I would probably say as is, is a last thought is when you begin examining liturgy or when you begin to continue your faith journey and start asking, what kind of liturgy do I want to incorporate in my life? What kind of liturgy do I wish my corporate community would incorporate or I could find in a community, et cetera? I would just like to remind you of this, because when you deal with liturgies, they tend to be some of the more common public faces of a lot of different denominations and persuasion. Mm. We do not arrive at any truth, let alone liturgical truth. We do not arrive at truth by rejecting what somebody else teaches. Mm. We arrive at truth by embracing what Jesus teaches, Wow, what the Scriptures teach. Right. So, and and I just know this because when I've had to go through my own liturgical journey, there's been times where I've seen something, uh, even recently, and I've gone, wow, that really speaks to me and I like that. And then my gut will be like, well, I can't embrace that because that's Roman Catholic. Or, you know, or the Lutherans do that or the Baptists do that or whatever. And I had to catch myself and go, I don't arrive at truth by rejecting what a Baptist teaches, Mm. what a Catholic teaches what an Anglican teaches, what an Adventist teaches, right? Sometimes when we've been hurt in a community, we tend to automatically reject whatever our community had because we got hurt by them. Well, you don't arrive at truth by rejecting them. You arrive at truth by embracing truth. So that would just be my encouragement to you on the liturgical journey. Don't be quick to categorize any liturgy. Examine it, pray about it, and and test it according to truth, according to, to Jesus. And when you do that you might be amazed that all of us are going to end up in something that I'm not going to say is a compromise, like we'll take a little of this and a little of that. I'm not necessarily saying ecumenical mm-hmm. in that way, but your liturgy, the most powerful liturgy your individual community might need, might look a teeny bit different than the overall liturgy of your group in certain ways. And that's fine, because I think, as I said, liturgy should be a reflection of the community. Absolutely. It, it should be relevant to you. So just be open to that
0: journey. Yep absolutely so we hope that you've enjoyed this conversation if you have any feedback for us uh feedback on in podcasting is very hard to come by uh so please reach out to us uh via our contact info below uh you can find us on twitter facebook uh there's also an email the emails go directly to me but i always share them with henry um and if there's anything that we're going to respond to um i definitely we we both work on that response together so don't think that there's you know it's only going to be ryan that sees this or whatever um, if you do want to reach out directly to Henry, his Twitter and his information is there and you can DM him there. Um, but yeah, thank you guys so much for listening, for being on this journey. We hope that you stay safe and stay healthy. Um, and if you are a gamer in any sort of way, um, then just remember this, if you're going outside for any reason, stay out of melee range. Um, so, um, <laughs> you're welcome for that. Thank you guys so much for listening to Beautiful Faith and we'll see you next time.